Dear listeners, are you tired of the endless cycle of fad diets and extreme measures? It's time to wake up to a better weight loss solution with Robody. As someone who's been through the ups and downs of weight loss, I know firsthand the challenge of trying to find what will stick. That's why if I qualified for Robody today, I jump at the chance for a scientifically backed program that supports long-term success. With Robody, you'll gain access to the most popular weight loss shots on the market, paired with personalized lifestyle changes. Over 200,000 people have already chosen Roe to help them lose weight. Say goodbye to the roller coaster of weight loss dreams and hello to sustainable, real results with Robody. Go to roco snoozecast. Sign up today and you'll pay just $99 for your first month and $145 a month after that. Medication costs are separate. That's ro.co slash snoozecast. mistress for, being most at home, she could attend to it regularly, and dearly liked the daily task of unlocking the little door and distributing the mail. 
One July day, she came in with her hands full and went about the house, leaving letters and parcels like the penny post. Here's your posy, mother. Lori never forgets that, she said, putting the fresh nosegay in the vase that stood in Marmy's corner and was kept supplied by the affectionate boy. Miss Meg March, one letter and a glove, continued Beth delivering the articles to her sister, who sat near her mother, stitching wristbands. Why, I left a pair over there, and here is only one, said Meg, looking at the gray cotton glove. Didn't you drop the other in the garden? No, I'm sure I didn't, for there was only one in the office. Oh, I hate to have odd gloves. Never mind. The other may be found. My letter is only a translation of the German song I wanted. I think Mr. Brooke did it, for this isn't Laurie's handwriting. Mrs. March glanced at Meg, who was looking very pretty in her gingham morning gown, with the little curls blowing about her forehead, and very womanly, as she sat sewing at her little work table full of tidy white rolls, so unconscious of the thought in her mother's mind as she sewed and sang, while her fingers flew and her thoughts were busied with girlish fancies as innocent and fresh as the pansies in her belt, that Mrs. March smiled and was satisfied. Two letters for Dr. Joe, a book, and a funny old hat, which covered the whole post office and stuck outside, said Beth, laughing as she went into the study where Joe was writing. What a sly fellow Laurie is. I said I wished bigger hats were in the fashion because I burn my face every hot day. He said, why mind the fashion? Wear a big hat, be comfortable. I said I would if I had one and he sent this to me to try me. I'll wear it for fun and show him I don't care for the fashion. And, hanging the antique broad brim on a bust of Play-Doh, Joe read her letters. One, from her mother, made her cheeks glow and her eyes fill, for it said to her, My dear, I write a little word to tell you with how much satisfaction I watch your efforts to control your temper. You say nothing about your trials, failures, or successes, and think, perhaps, that no one sees them but the friend whose help you daily ask if I may trust the well-worn cover of your guidebook. I, too, have seen them all, and heartily believe in the sincerity of your resolution, since it begins to bear fruit. Go on, dear, patiently and bravely, and always believe that no one sympathizes more tenderly with you than your loving mother. That does me good. 
that's worth millions of money and pecks of praise. Oh, Marmy, I do try. I will keep on trying and not get tired, since I have you to help me. Laying her head on her arms, Joe wet her little romance with a few happy tears, for she had thought that no one saw and appreciated her efforts to be good, and this assurance was doubly precious, doubly encouraging, because unexpected and from the person whose commendation she most valued, feeling stronger than ever to meet and subdue her Apollyon, she pinned the note inside her frock as a shield and a reminder, lest she be taken unaware, and proceeded to open her other letter, quite ready for either good or bad news. In a big, dashing hand, Lori wrote, Dear Joe, what ho! Some English girls and boys are coming to see me tomorrow, and I want to have a jolly time. If it's fine, I'm going to pitch my tent in Longmeadow and row up the whole crew to lunch and croquet, have a fire, make messes, gypsy fashion, and all sorts of larks. They're nice people and like such things. Brooke will go to keep us boys steady, and Kate Vaughn will play propriety for the girls. I want you all to come. Can't let Beth off at any price, and nobody shall worry her. Don't bother about rations. I'll see to that and everything else. Only do come. There's a good fellow. In a tearing hurry, yours ever, Lori. Here's richness, cried Joe, flying in to tell the news to Meg. Of course we can go, mother. It'll be such a help to Lori, for I can row, and Meg can see to lunch, and the children can be useful in some way. I hope the Vaughns are not fine grown-up people. Do you know anything about them, Joe? Asked Meg. Only that there are four of them. Kate is older than you. Fred and Frank, twins, about my age. And a little girl, Grace, who is nine or ten. Lori knew them abroad and liked the boys. I fancied, from the way he primmed up his mouth in speaking of her, that he didn't admire Kate much. I'm so glad my French print is clean. It's just the thing and so becoming, observed Meg complacently. Have you anything decent, Joe? Scarlet and gray boating suit, good enough for me. I shall row and tramp about, so I don't want any starch to think of. You'll come, Betty? If you won't let any boys talk to me, not a boy. I like to please Lori, and I'm not afraid of Mr. Brooke. He's so kind. But I don't want to play or sing or say anything. I'll work hard and not trouble anyone. And you'll take care of me, Joe, 
so I'll go. That's my good girl. You do try to fight off your shyness, and I love you for it. Fighting faults isn't easy, as I know, and a cheery word kind of gives a lift. Thank you, mother. And Joe gave the thin cheek a grateful kiss, more precious to Mrs. March than if it had given back the rosy roundness of her youth. I had a box of chocolate drops and the picture I wanted to copy, said Amy, showing her mail. And I got a note from Mr. Lawrence asking me to come over and play to him tonight before the lamps are lighted, and I shall go, added Beth, whose friendship with the old gentleman prospered finely. Now. Let's fly round and do double duty today so that we can play tomorrow with free minds, said Joe, preparing to replace her pen with a broom. When the sun peeped into the girls' room early next morning to promise them a fine day, he saw a comical sight. Each had made such preparation for the fete as seemed necessary and proper. Meg had an extra row of little curl papers across her forehead. Joe had copiously anointed her afflicted face with cold cream. Beth had taken Joanna to bed with her to atone for the approaching separation. And Amy had capped the climax by putting a clothespin on her nose to uplift the offending feature. It was one of the kind artists use to hold the paper on their drawing boards, therefore quite appropriate and effective for the purpose it was now being put. This funny spectacle appeared to amuse the sun, for he burst out with such radiance that Joe woke up and roused her sisters by a hearty laugh at Amy's ornament. Sunshine and laughter were good omens for a pleasure party, and soon a lively bustle began in both houses. Beth, who was ready first, kept reporting what went on next door and enlivened her sister's toilets by frequent telegrams from the window. There goes the man with the tent, I see Mrs. Barker doing up the lunch in a hamper and a great basket. Now, Mr. Lawrence is looking up at the sky and the weathercock. I wish he would go, too. Oh, there's Laurie, looking like a sailor. Nice boy. Oh, mercy me. Here's a carriage full of people. A tall lady a little girl, and two dreadful boys. One is lame, poor thing, 
he's got a crutch. Lori didn't tell us that. Be quick, girls. It's getting late. Why? There's Ned Moffat, I do declare. Meg, isn't that the man who bowed to you one day when we were shopping? So it is. How strange that he should come. I thought he was at the mountains. Well, there is Sally. I'm glad she got back in time. Am I all right, Joe? cried Meg in a flutter. A regular daisy. Hold up your dress and put your hat on straight. It looks sentimental tipped that way. We'll fly off at the first puff. Now then, come on. Oh, Joe, you're not going to wear that awful hat. It's too absurd. You shall not make a guy of yourself, remonstrated Meg, as Joe tied down with a red ribbon the broad-brimmed, old-fashioned leghorn Lori had sent for a joke. I just will, though, for its capital, so shady, light, and big. It will make fun, and I don't mind being a guy if I'm comfortable. With that, Joe marched straight away, and the rest followed. A bright little band of sisters, all looking their best in summer suits, with happy faces under the jaunty hat brims. Lori ran to meet and present them to his friends in the most cordial manner. The lawn was the reception room, and for several minutes a lively scene was enacted there. Meg was grateful to see that Miss Kate, though twenty, was dressed with a simplicity which American girls would do well to imitate, and who was much flattered by Mr. Ned's assurances that he came especially to see her. Joe understood why Lori primmed up his mouth when speaking of Kate, for that young lady had a standoff, don't touch me air, which contrasted strongly with the free and easy demeanor of the other girls. Beth took an observation of the new boys and decided that the lame one was not dreadful, but gentle, and she would be kind to him on that account. Amy found Grace a well-mannered, merry little person, and after staring dumbly at one another for a few minutes, they suddenly became very good friends, tense, lunch, and croquet utensils having been sent on beforehand. The party was soon embarked, and the two boats pushed off together, leaving Mr. Lawrence waving his hat on the shore. Lori and Joe rowed one boat, Mr. Brooke and Ned the other, while Fred Vaughn, the riotous twin, did his best to upset both by paddling about 
in a wary like a disturbed water bug. Joe's funny hat deserved a vote of thanks, for it was of general utility. It broke the ice in the beginning by producing a laugh. It created quite a refreshing breeze, flapping to and fro as she rode, and would make an excellent umbrella for the whole party if a shower came up, she said. Miss Kate decided that she was odd, but rather clever, and smiled upon her from afar. Meg, in the other boat, was delightfully situated, face to face with the rowers, who both admired the prospect and feathered their oars with uncommon skill and dexterity. Mr. Brooke was a grave, silent young man with handsome brown eyes and a pleasant voice. Meg liked his quiet manners and considered him a walking encyclopedia of useful knowledge. He never talked to her much, but he looked at her a great deal, and she felt sure that he did not regard her with aversion. Ned, being in college, of course, put on all the airs which freshmen think it's their bounden duty to assume. He was not very wise, but very good-natured, and altogether an excellent person to carry on a picnic. Sally Gardiner was absorbed in keeping her white dress clean and chattering with the ubiquitous Fred, who kept Beth in constant terror by his pranks. It was not far to Longmeadow, but the tent was pitched and the wickets down by the time they arrived. A pleasant green field with three wide-spreading oaks in the middle and a smooth strip of turf for croquet. Welcome to Camp Lawrence, said the young host as they landed with exclamations of delight. Brooke is commander-in-chief. I am commissary general. The other fellows are staff officers and you ladies are company. The tent is for your especial benefit and that oak is your drawing room. This is the mess room and the third is the camp kitchen. Now let's have a game before it gets hot, and then we'll see about dinner. Frank, Beth, Amy, and Grace sat down to watch the game played by the other eight. Mr. Brooke chose Meg, Kate, and Fred. Lori took Sally, Joe, and Ned. The English played well, but the Americans played better and contested every inch of the ground as strongly as if the spirit of 76 inspired them. Joe and Fred had several skirmishes, and once narrowly escaped high words. Joe was through the last wicket and had missed the stroke, which failure ruffled her a good deal. Fred was close behind her, and his turn came before hers. 
He gave a stroke. His ball hit the wicket and stopped an inch on the wrong side. No one was very near, and running up to examine, he gave it a sly nudge with his toe, which put it just an inch on the right side. I'm through. Now, Miss Joe, I'll settle you and get in first, cried the young gentleman, swinging his mallet for another blow. You pushed it. I saw you. It's my turn now, said Joe sharply. Upon my word, I didn't move it. It rolled a bit, perhaps, but that's allowed. So, stand off, please. Let me have a go at the stake. We don't cheat in America, but you can if you choose, said Joe angrily. Yankees are a deal the most tricky, everybody knows. There you go, returned Fred, croqueting her ball far away. Joe opened her lips to say something rude, but checked herself in time, colored up to her forehead, and stood a minute hammering down a wicket with all her might, while Fred hit the stake and declared himself out with much exultation. She went off to get her ball and was a long time finding it among the bushes. But she came back, looking cool and quiet, and waited her turn patiently. It took several strokes to regain the place she had lost, and when she got there, the other side had nearly won, for Kate's ball was the last but one and lay near the stake. By George, it's all up with us. Goodbye, Kate. Miss Joe owes me one, so you are finished, cried Fred excitedly as they all drew near to see the finish. Yankees have a trick of being generous to their enemies, said Joe with a look that made the lad redden, especially when they beat them, she added, as leaving Kate's ball untouched. She won the game by a clever stroke. Lori threw up his hat, then remembered that it wouldn't do to exult over the defeat of his guests and stopped in the middle of the chair to whisper to his friend, Good for you, Joe. He did cheat. I saw him. We can't tell him so, but he won't do it again. Take my word for it. Meg drew her aside under pretense of pinning up a loose braid and said approvingly, It was dreadfully provoking, but you kept your temper, and I'm so glad, Joe. 
Don't praise me, Meg, for I could box his ears this minute. I should certainly have boiled over if I hadn't stayed among the nettles till I got my rage under control enough to hide my tongue. It's simmering now, so I hope he'll keep out of my way, returned Joe, biting her lips as she glowered at Fred from under her big hat. Time for lunch, said Mr. Brooke, looking at his watch. Commissary General, will you make the fire and get water while Miss March, Miss Sally, and I spread the table? Who can make good coffee? Joe can, said Meg, glad to recommend her sister. So Joe, feeling that her late lessons in cookery were to do her honor, went to preside over the coffee pot while the children collected dry sticks and the boys made a fire and got water from a spring nearby. Miss Kate sketched and Frank talked to Beth, who was making little mats of braided rushes to serve as plates. The commander-in-chief and his aides soon spread the tablecloth with an inviting array of eatables and drinkables, prettily decorated with green leaves. Joe announced that the coffee was ready, and everyone settled themselves to a hearty meal, for youth is seldom dyspeptic, and exercise develops wholesome appetites. A very merry lunch it was, for everything seemed fresh and funny, and frequent peals of laughter startled a venerable horse who fed nearby. There was a pleasing inequality at the table, which produced many mishaps to cups and plates, acorns dropped in the milk, Little black ants partook of the refreshments without being invited, and fuzzy caterpillars swung down from the tree to see what was going on. Three white-headed children peeped over the fence, and an objectionable dog barked at them from the other side of the river with all his might and main. There's salt here, said Lori, as he handed Joe a saucer of berries. Thank you, I prefer spiders, she replied, fishing up two unwary ones who had gone to a creamy death. How dare you remind me of that horrid dinner party? When yours is so nice in every way, added Joe, as they both laughed and ate out of one plate, the china having run short. I had an uncommonly good time that day, and haven't got over it yet. This is no credit to me, you know. I don't do anything. If you and Meg and Brooke make it all go, 
and I'm no end obliged to you. What shall we do when we can't eat anymore? Asked Lori, feeling that his trump card had been played when the lunch was over.